My guest today is Paul Sankey, who's known as being uh, uh, the analyst who first called for oil prices to go negative when COVID began. And uh, eventually we have the Sankey research team that he started and uh, recognized as a number one on many different investor surveys as the number one blog uh, expert that people follow in the specific area of oil. Having said that, Paul, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thanks for having me. Climate. So, current climate in regards to oil, who is happy, who is concerned, who is pushing us to get away from oil? Well, listen, I'm not an oil analyst anymore, right? I'm, a, I'm an energy transition analyst, and my website, there you go. Research, is styled as the uh, energy transition on Wall Street. And, you know, we've just had to sort of adapt to, uh, to the reality around us, and that's, you know, the beauty of Wall Street. We, we're trying to value the future. And if you don't get that, then you're probably not going to do very well because essentially the value of an equity is the present value of the future free cash flow. So we're putting a value on the future and that's our job. And so if you see an industry shifting in the way that I did with oil, you better start shifting. And by the same token, I left the bulge bracket bank, you know, the Wall Street banks in order to start up on my own because I needed the flexibility uh, to cover this challenge that you're talking about. So. Essentially, what's happened here is that there's been a bit of a, a conflation of COVID and the demand turn, downturn that we got as a result, basically, of economic collapse with the end of the oil age. So people have thought that, you know, what happened last year, which was the Fed essentially making uh, the cost of capital zero, causing renewable stocks to absolutely rip and really causing a lot of pain to oil stocks, which were suffering from very weak demand, you know, people confuse that, which is natural, as, as a major shift that's occurring. Now, in valuation terms, there is a major shift occurring because people want to buy renewable stocks and with ESG, environmental social governance, there's just no way you can make an oil stock look good because the emissions associated with the use of oil and gas are high, you know, it's a fact. Um, but having said that, the debate is really shifting rapidly. And in many ways, as we, as we are today, which is really your question, there's actually a backlash against ESG because essentially we're facing a global energy crisis. And so we've seen oil become the best performing sector in the market this year. And you know, a lot of these renewable stocks at times, for example, solar has been very weak this year. Uh, you know, I've had a much more troubling year and there's a lot of controversy even today around statements by Jay Powell, Fed chairman, about the potential for, uh, for the end of the tapering and, and, and raising interest rates because inflation's kind of out of control. Our call has been that if you think there's going to be inflation, oil prices will go up and you'll be long the oils. Additionally, the valuation of the oils will improve relatively because if you're worried about inflation, a stock such as a solar stock that's discounting 2030 or 2035 becomes even more expensive because the, the, the value of the dollars in the future will be a lot lower. And therefore, what you're assuming for their earnings in 2035 will actually be a lot lower. And therefore, the stock's very expensive. And so we see that group trading quite aggressively with whatever the Fed chairman says, which is kind of weird. In the meantime, the oil price is high and the oils have better strategies. 
more investor-friendly, and so the group's doing very well. Why are oil prices high right now? Demand, basically. Um, you know, you've had a pretty significant... The first principle of looking at oil is always what's going on on the demand side. And the leading indicator, because it's very difficult, the data is poor, the leading indicator is always refining margins. So how much are refining companies making? If the oil price is going up and refining margins are going negative, it tells you that it's speculative fear and it's not a real oil price. At the moment, refining margins are going up at the same time as oil, which tells you that it's a demand-driven uh, environment and, and there's, there's a lot of power there in terms of the demand side. Additionally, OPEC is either both cut back production and struggling to produce as much oil. And finally, you've had capital discipline, which is a new era for the US E&P companies. They're not spending their returning cash to shareholders because it's the end of the oil age. And if that's what you want us to do, that's what we're going to do. And therefore, you've also not had the growth from the US that you saw over the previous 10 years on the supply side. So essentially, as you can imagine, it's a combination of supply and demand. There's controversy about how much more OPEC could produce because they're cut back. Uh, but we think that's probably not as high as some people would imagine. And of course, the other major issue is that we're going into winter and there's a global gas shortage, which was driven by a couple of wildcard aspects, one of which was shortage of coal in China and India. Shortage of coal in China and India was not on my business card, well, it's not on my bingo card for uh, 2021, but we got that. And so you've had a huge squeeze on natural gas, which is leading to a squeeze on oil. So if it's the end of oil age, uh, 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 how are these big oil companies going to, not only how are they going to handle it, are they going to allow that to become a reality? You're not talking about small companies. You're talking about uh, a China Petroleum Company, net income, you know, uh, revenue is a $355 billion company, right? You got uh, Petro PetroChina 320. You got Aramco. You got uh, Shell 261. You got BP. You got Exxon. These are not small companies. These are guys with a lot of money, with lobbyists. And a lot of people that are making millions on top of millions of dollars, are they really going to allow the end of oil age? You know, the, what environmentalists miss is that it's, the, the companies don't have a choice if you change your behavior. So if you buy an electric car, if you start using less energy, if you put a solar panel on your roof, if you behave more efficiently, they're powerless. And that's their biggest threat. That's my biggest frustration with the environmental movement, is they keep attacking the supply side, for example, new pipelines. New pipelines are really environmentally friendly because the existing infrastructure is very old and it leaks. But they oppose new pipelines because the theory is if we stop supply, uh, then we'll stop demand. But that's pretty regressive. You know, the point being, it hurts poor people more than it hurts rich people. And, you know, it's pretty almost fascist, arguably, to, to say, okay, I'm not going to let people supply energy because you shouldn't be allowed to use it. What you should be doing is changing your own behavior, and that would then knock the companies out. Where the companies, the companies are changing as fast as they can. Um, they've been busted in the case of Exxon for trying to denigrate the climate change movement, which is really, you know, nightmarish for Exxon. But most of the other companies, if you look at a Chevron or a ConocoPhillips, they just accept that the change is happening and that they've simply got to be more efficient, better players to survive uh, the potential for lower demand in the future. At the same time, demand's not falling. Demand's hitting a record high for oil, and we're at 100 million barrels a day plus, which is, you know, 1,000 barrels a second of oil are being used. And to replace that with, with solar, People just don't understand the energy density of oil, which, by the way, is naturally occurring, arguably environmentally friendly because it comes from the earth, uh, where you're going to be replacing it with solar panels, which are often built 
90% more or less are built in China using coal-fired electricity and forced labor. And you're going to tell me that's a better option than using Texan oil? So that's part of the ESG back, back, uh, backlash. It's really dynamic, though, I must say. You know, this is, a, this is an ongoing situation, fascinating to cover, obviously. But uh, what I will say, tell you is the more the government gets involved, the more they're going to screw it up. And so far, we've seen California, UK, arguably certainly Germany, essentially completely screw up their energy systems by going too far, too fast. It's funny you say UK and California because I think Boris Johnson said as of 2035, they're not going to allow for gas-powered cars to be sold. They're going to ban it. You can drive it, but you can't uh, sell it anymore. And I think Newsom announced it last week on right. uh, the same thing. He pretty much mimicked exactly what Boris Johnson said. They're going to do it in 2035 as well. So the, the question it would make me think about is, Paul, this is your world. What percentage of oil is consumed because of cars? What percentage is, you know, can, can you, do you know the breakdown of how oil is used around the world? Sure. I mean, you know, the single largest sector of the oil market, the oil market, as I mentioned, is, is kind of elegant. It's 100 million barrels a day, 1,000 barrels a second. second. Uh, 10 million barrels a day alone is U.S. cars, just U.S. So the single biggest part of the global oil market, the single biggest sector by sector is U.S. gasoline, which is used, you know, really wastefully. Wow. You know, I think I counted once from my son heading down the Long Island Expressway. We reckon that 80% of U.S. pickups have nothing in the back. <laughs> you know, why are you driving a pickup? Because <laughs> um, you know that the efficiency of the fleet here is the same now, today, 20 miles per gallon as, it, as the Model T Ford. The Model T Ford was about 20 miles per gallon. Now, of course, you've got air conditioning and DVDs and what have you, but the fact is, getting from A to B, use is very inefficient. Overall transport is about 40 to 50%. Worldwide. Worldwide, yeah. About 8 million barrels a day in aviation is very difficult to replace. They'll tell you they're going to use burger fat in order to make biofuel, in order to run planes. But in reality, you just don't have enough burger fat. Um, so there's numerous elements where you have greenwashing, where essentially they say we're going to use bio, you know, uh, renewable diesel, whatever. But in fact, you know, the 8 million barrels a day of jet fuel alone, simply you, you can't run a plane, not that number of planes, uh, on renewable fuel at the moment. And if you do, it's going to be very expensive. And one of the key effects will be highly inflationary food prices. Because essentially what you're going to end up doing is using soybean oil, which arguably is not that environmentally friendly, in order to make biodiesel and so on. So the biggest marginal changes that we're watching are basically China and India. Um, in the grand scheme of things, basically about a third of oil is used in the Americas, a third is used in Europe and the Middle East and Africa and a third is used in Asia. And the biggest marginal increase, as you can imagine, is China, which is now the biggest energy consumer in the world, to the point where it's actually um, more than Europe and uh, the US combined, China alone. And the big issue in energy this year actually has been the strength of uh, Chinese electricity demand, which has been huge off the biggest base in the world. So, so, Paul. So the, the, the key point there really is the scale of the energy density and the amount of energy used is very, very difficult to replace with interruptible windmills and solar. You know, it just doesn't balance. You can't do it. And that's what people have to accept, which is that you have to have natural gas or nuclear as your trans true transition fuels. You know? so, so, if you're saying U.S. out of the 10 million of the 100 million is just U.S. automobiles, worldwide yeah. is 40 to 50 million. Aviation was 8 million. What's next? So at that point, we're around 48 to 58 million a day. 
What is next? What other industry is next in, in oil? Uh, you've got the, um, let me think now, it basically you go down through propane, you know, which is used in home heating. That's the lightest part of the barrel. Then you get into jet fuel uh, and gasoline, which, as we mentioned, is a very large part of the balance. And then below that, you have distillate. Distillate is partly used in transport. It's also used in a lot of industrial uh, facilities, you know, so you might use it in a factory, you might use it in a generator. You're going to use it in ships, uh, trains, you know, so that's part of the transport balance. But that's what you would know called diesel. And then uh, the remainder is going to be stuff that you don't even know you're using, like plastics. I mean, one of the key things here is that people underestimate the importance of plastics, which you can basically either make from natural gas or oil. That's what the global industry uses. But that's going to be another 10, 15, 20 percent. And then finally, uh, things like asphalt, you know, the heaviest part of the barrel, which obviously used on roads. So all of that adds up to, you know, an enormous number of products, not just in cars, that need somehow to be replaced. And the point is really that the replacements are not necessarily better. So what you're seeing is, for example, the IEA would say what you're trying to do is shift the global economy from a hydrocarbon economy to a mineral economy. Now, that might reduce your emissions, but it's going to cause a lot of problems. You know, mining is not environmentally friendly. It's often done in countries that are nightmarish, like, you know, for example, the Congo, where they're going to be using child labor to mine cobalt, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And a ton of this stuff is processed in China. You know, one of the reasons I'm independent is because I can turn around and say, look, China's a totalitarian regime that, you know, you shouldn't support. You should actually oppose. You should try not to buy an iPhone. Nobody does. And yet you'll hear yelling at me about, you know, how evil Exxon and Chevron are. You know, it's just kind of BS, right? It's pretty wild what you just said right there. So you, 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 you call China totalitarian, and they, yeah, no they, they'll still... Say, yeah. right? they, these guys can't... They would, they would just delete it. If I wrote that in a yeah. my previous employers, they would just delete it. They can't be rude about China. But, you know, I'm British. My father's a British diplomat. These guys are appalling human rights. You know, what are you doing? What's Tesla doing? Should it really be allowed to do that? Just today, we've had a guy from the NBA pointing out what they do in Tibet. And the guy's been scrubbed from the Chinese internet. I saw that. Celtics games are not being shown. It's like, you know, you want to deal with these people and you want to buy all your solar panels from them. He's a, he's uh, a friend. Ennis Cantor. You're going to have to scrub this webcast now. <laughs> well, we like webcasts like this because this gets people to think for themselves. But going back to it, you said when the government gets involved, he says, you said they're indirectly not hurting the rich. They're hurting the poor. Can you unpack that? What do you mean by they're hurting the poor instead of the rich? Well, just that energy costs are, are aggressive, right? So that if you're a poor person, you spend more of your income on energy and gasoline than a rich person does. It's just very regressive. That's why... I got you. So basic uh, economics. Essentially, if gasoline price goes up, it, it, it's, it's way worse. Or if the price of oil goes up, you know, it, it, you know, at the moment, actually, for, for separate government reasons, I think there'll be more deaths in the UK this winter from energy poverty than there will from COVID. We've got 40 to 60,000 deaths coming this winter based on the gas crisis that the government's basically engineered. But the regressive idea, yeah, is simply that, you know, a given person at a low income spends far more of their income and is far less flexible in terms of, uh, you know, how much they have to spend on energy just to survive. So let's say it costs, a simple example, let's say it costs $200 to rent an apartment. Obviously, if you're making $10,000, that's a lot more Paul, 40 to 50 uh, million a day out of the 100 million is automobile. Okay, automobile. So uh, if. I want to check that actually. You're making me nervous because I did that off the top of my head. 10 million a day for sure is. Uh, US. US gasoline alone. 
and then about 40% of everything else is two. Um, so there's that, yeah. There's somebody that really wants to talk to you, by the way. I don't know. That's really it. <laughs> so third time they knocked on the door. You may want to just say hi to them. Um, but no, here's, here's where I'm going with this. Let's say the number is 30%. Let's say the number is 40%. Let's say the number is 50%. It's a big number. So the biggest one's going to be automobile. So I guess the question I'm asking is, if they're pushing for everything going electric, due to climate change, if that is what everybody is pushing for, to go in that direction, how, are, how is the oil industry, these big oil companies, hedging themselves against this eventually going there? Because you're not talking about 5% of the business, not 10%. It's 40 to 50% of it. So how are insurance companies, how are oil companies essentially insuring themselves against the trend that we're going away from oil-driven cars? Well, basically, the first thing that happened is that people started selling oil stocks, right? Because they were like, we can't own. For example, European fund managers, quite a few of them now have a, 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 a calculation of how carbon intense their funds are. And so obviously, if you're selling 8 million barrels a day of oil, like Exxon is, uh, you're going to basically come up as very, very high emission and therefore, you know, unfriendly in terms of your emissions. And so people don't want to own the stock, want to own the stock. So the stock prices perform very poorly. At the point, that point, the strategy began to change, and so you saw some extreme examples like BP, where, or Total actually is a better example because they did a good job, BP did a horrible job in my opinion. But, B, but Total, for example, as of 2017, 2018, said, okay, look, we're going to transition and we're going to start going after consumers. We're going to do really what I've said you should do is address the fact that individuals have to make an individual decision to use less energy and be more environmentally friendly. You can't do it any other way. Greenpeace themselves would say that, that you know you're you're the solution. You personally are the solution. You just got to ask yourself, you know, how much am I flying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's why people go nuts when Leonardo DiCaprio is like hanging out on yachts, and and you know Emma Thompson flew from LA to join the Extinction Rebellion uh, protest in London, and people were like, "What are you doing? You know, just <laughs> stupid." Um, so basically, absent that, the oil companies then were forced to change, and they're really. To be honest, they're really struggling with it uh, because the problem is that their cost of capital is high. So if the market sells the stock, their cost of capital goes up, if that makes sense to you. Uh, for example, a renewables company, the market wants to invest in, gives them a very low cost of capital. So they'll very easily raise money and they can invest. And as you know, the value of an equity is the cost of capital, is the uh, returns over the cost of capital. So if you've got a relatively low return project like a windmill, or a major wind farm, that's going to be an 8 to 10% return at best. But if your cost of capital is 2%, uh, then that's a very good return for investors. The problem for Exxon is its yield alone, its dividend payment is 6%. If you add that, you know, a cost of capital to make a return above that, their real cost, cost of capital is probably 15%. If we were to say to them, shall I invest in a new oil project, we would want to see a 15 to 20% return. So for these oil companies, my view is they should shrink. They should just get smaller and make very high returns and in many ways follow the tobacco model. Uh, you know, so what tobacco companies did is with a declining market is they simply went into a very high cash return to shareholder mode and they became very attractive stocks because ultimately the market doesn't have a conscience, which is debatable now with ESG. The issue with ESG is that, you know, is it really morally better to use renewables than it is oil and gas is a rising debate, you know, and it hasn't been one up until now, but the more people realize that solar panels are built in China using coal-fired power and forced labor, 
the more people realize that you might kill people by not having energy available when it's the de depths of the winter. All of these things are causing people, I think, to reconsider what will be probably, for example, a disastrous climate summit coming up uh, here at, in Glasgow, you know, in two weeks, whatever it is, time, November the 1st in Glasgow, you have COP26. It's probably going to be a shambles. So all of these things are really live debates. And for the oil companies, it's very difficult because they've got the, 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 the challenge of maybe chasing the ball here into an area where investment investors don't want them to go anywhere anyway. Or do they actually just tough it out and say, you know what, I'm going to uh, stick with what I do unapologetically in many ways. Or rather, I would advise them, frankly, to greenwash and pretend that they're green, which people are so bad at analyzing this stuff, they'll probably buy it anyway. Certainly stop advertising. I don't know why they advertise. Nobody's ever going to love these companies. But basically, just reward your shareholders as much as you possibly can, which would be through buyback and dividend and keeping the lowest possible profile. Is it hypocritical? Sure, but you know. As I said, if you want a friend, buy a dog. <laughs> I'm looking at data based on what you just said when you said tobacco and cigarettes, okay? And this data I'm looking at, I, I can't share it on the screen here because I'm looking at it over here, but I'll send it to you. And it, sh it shows, it shows uh, how it grew from early 1900s, then uh, Great Depression increased smoking even more. World War I definitely helped it, helped it. World War II helped it. Then in 1960s, the first Surgeon General's report on smoking and health came out. Then Fairness and Doc, it went from... I mean, you have to see how much the numbers dropped off. It's a 50% drop-off immediately and gradually goes all the way down to today being a quarter of what it was in, uh, in mid-60s of smokers. So a quarter of smokers today versus what we had in the mid-60s, right? Do you think the trend is going to look the same way with oil? Do you think it's going to be that dramatic of a drop-off? No, I mean, I think, you know, obviously smoking is more demonstrably directly negative, right? So people make an intelligent decision. I think, you know, I'm one of the few college-educated Americans that smoke left. You know, you have to be really seriously dumb to actually smoke uh, cigars, in my case. But, you know, people still want to do it at the margin. But no, it's, it's going to be difficult, certainly. And that's why people talk about hydrogen, because there's really no alternate uh, way of, of really... Coal, coal or, or cheap energy into heavy industry is very, very difficult to replace. And again, it's very difficult to make hydrogen in an emissions-friendly way, and there's no infrastructure. Another point, by the way, I make is if you want to recycle stuff, why would you rip up all the existing infrastructure for oil and gas in order to, to put in new? That's going to be hugely energy-intensive, so that doesn't make sense to itself. The, the, the one that is huge that we mentioned is... Um, is cars, you know, that you, if you can switch to EVs. Now, that's, of course, going to put enormous pressure on, on the raw materials for EVs and the electricity system. Um, but ultimately, that at least massively lowers your emissions if the electricity is made in an emission-friendly way, which really should be nuclear. At the moment, you're still 40% of the U.S. power generation. U.S., actually, 30% of U.S. power generation is from coal. 60 to 70% of China, which is really the problem, is coal. And that's going to be extremely difficult to replace. If the other issue, which the chart that no one looks at, which you should look at, is look at a, a long-term population chart. You know, what's happened here is the, the global population has gone to 7 billion. Um, 
on a, on a just kind of a crazy exponential rise. Nobody ever plots these emissions on a per capita basis. But the reality is we're actually, given the population weight that we face, getting more efficient. So it's a really a major question for the, the next 50 years is, are we really going to be able to replace this oil? And if you look at all the forecasts, they're just wildly optimistic. It's going to be extremely difficult. And again, the key issue is environmentalism is a luxury. You know, it's all very well for Greta to come out and say we should use less energy. She's had a massively privileged upbringing in one of the richest countries in the world, which has some of the highest rates of hydropower production in the world. And she wants to turn around to a bunch of Indians and Chinese and say, no, you're not allowed to have my life. That's kind of, that's just outrageous in my opinion. Greta's done a wonderful job in raising awareness of the energy challenge and making people think. Brilliant, well done to her, absolutely remarkable. But at the same time, her position is so fundamentally nonsensical when it comes to somebody who's virtually starving in India, who's desperate not to use dung and die of, you know, emphysema at an early age because they're using dung or firewood inside an, un, you know, inside a, a enclosed space. You know, I mean, this is this is causing deaths. So ultimately, environmentalism is partly a luxury and it's partly a suicide mission. You know, what you're really saying is we need less people in the world. And you're probably going to get less people if you really apply some of this very aggressive and very expensive zero emission stuff. Uh, it's a simple fact. And that's, that, that circle is never, is never square. If you look at what Greta said recently, she's talking about global leaders going blah, blah, blah. But she didn't say, she didn't present any solutions herself. You know, her taking a carbon fiber yacht across the Atlantic, she said was to prove how difficult it is, which was a point well made. I mean, how many people are going to cross the Atlantic in a freaking carbon fiber yacht? On top of that, the guy that drove the yacht had to fly the Atlantic to drive it. You know, it's just like, it's, it's very, very difficult. And the only thing that we can do is try and be more efficient individually and get governments to do a better job of, for example, improving the electricity grid or using more natural gas. So, uh, 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 to me, there is, there's a few ways I see this here. So, one, I see the, the politics side of this. Then there's the economic side of this. And then there's the guys that are just the predictive analytics guys, right? Where, okay, the politics is what? Climate change, climate change, climate change. That is a number one, uh, uh, you know, uh, issue. That's the number one above everything else that we should be worried about. And so it gets, when a leader or president says that, the populace says, oh my gosh, climate change is the biggest issue. If climate change is the biggest issue, we have to get rid of gas, we have to do this, we have to do that. So it gets the populace to say, now I understand why they want to get rid of cars. Okay, so that's politics. But let's set politicians aside. Let's set the uh, 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 economical side aside, which is guys that are driven by profits. They're like, listen, if this thing drops below 65 bucks, we don't make money. Whatever that number is between 60 to $65 when it drops, they're not making money. My question is the data guys and the, the, those on the inside that are with, the, with you know, a government that's sitting there like a Norway saying, yeah, we're just not going to get rid of our oil right now. We're going to sit on the reserves right now. We're not going to touch it because we're going to long our oil. Why are you longing your oil? So why are so many countries long on oil when everything about the direction we're going with the climate change epidemic that they're talking about is forcing us to get away from oil. If that's really that big of an issue, why are several government handling their oil reserves in a different way, thinking they're going to need it 50, 100 years from now? I don't know if my question makes any sense, but it, it, may, maybe it does to you based on what I'm asking. 
Yeah, look, my attitude is that the first problem, the, the most emissions intensive is coal, you know, and you're still using all-time record amounts of coal, you know, and really you shouldn't be. So coal, arguably, certainly the natural gas is replaceable over time, and that's 40% less emissions right there. So just that basic move, you should focus on that, right? But the problem is you're going to have to change behavior in China and India. Um, as regards oil, yeah, it's more it's more emissions intense, and there's definitely areas where, for example, in the U.S., you can just get much higher efficiency from cars, and greatly lower emissions. You know, uh, and then that's even that's controversial because where it turns really hypocritical is sort of the Norwegians. Sure, they don't want to not produce their oil, but what's really hypocritical is no U.S. politician would do the most logical thing, which is just to put on a gasoline tax or a carbon tax and force people to pay a price for energy, which is more reflective of the emissions associated with it. So you can't just, you know, run electric heaters like crazy and drive around in a stupid jacked up pickup truck without paying for it. You have the right to do that, but you're going to have to pay the true environmental cost. But, you know, no politician, because it's widely considered to be environmental suicide, ironically, thanks to Jimmy Carter, not environmental suicide, sorry, political suicide, thanks to Jimmy Carter, no politician will go near it. Ask AOC, do you support gasoline tax? I doubt she'll answer the question, you know, because the fact of the matter is, is it's known that the U.S. consumer doesn't support it. So if the U.S. consumer doesn't support it, you're kind of wasting your time in the first place, right, because no politician's going to support it. Then, worse, you have things like the Green New Energy Deal, which is just absolute crap. I mean, if you read it, it's like running for class president saying, you know, no homework and free candy. It's like we're going to create 4 million jobs from, you know, a whole load of wind farms, and we're going to completely take coal out of the electricity system in the U.S. And you say, well, if you do that on the time frame that you say that you're going to do it, especially given that utilities don't want to change, they're the most boring, regulated, conservative companies that have no interest in change, it's going to be basically impossible to do it. And if you do do it, the lights are going to go out. And then you're not going to be able to use your iPhone. So if you think it's going to happen, the answer is it's not. It's all just noise, you know, at which point you turn around and say, well, look, the oil stocks, the oil and gas stocks are undervalued. People might not want to own them for moral reasons, I get it. But in reality, the value of these stocks is much higher than is currently discounted by the market. Because let's face it, this oil and gas age is going to last a lot longer than you think. So we'll see. Additionally, we just don't know how the environment's going to react, right? Because the modeling is so poor that it's not really understood where mankind is responsible for sort of 10 to 20% of CO2 emissions. And CO2 encourages plant growth. You know, there's a whole load of stuff that essentially is very, very unknown. If you look at the, the, the margin of error and how much difference it makes at sea level, how much of the sea level temperature actually changes, all these things are massively unknown. So if you make multi-trillion dollar decisions or destroy your economy, it probably is not going to make a whole lot of difference, quite frankly, depressingly enough. So I think what we're going to do is basically live through a long emergency here, unfortunately. And you should plan accordingly. I live in Brooklyn Heights, you know, for a good reason. You don't want to be at sea level too much. Not so much that it'll be flooded, but that it's going to flood a lot. You know, throughout the year, it's not going to be underwater, but you'll see a lot of volatile weather. It's tough. I mean, it's it's tough, and uh, frankly, I think the politicians are doing a horrible job. So, 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 so then, if that's what you're saying, you, let me kind of restate what I think you said is. So, is this all just a bunch of show? Is this all a show? What they're talking about in regards to oil, knowing this thing's not going to be going away? 
Somewhat, yeah. I mean, I think the, the clearest thinker in my mind in, in modern is, is, is not fashionable to say, to say the least, but if you listen to Vladimir Putin, he'll explain to you, he'll say to you, look, he said this at Russian Energy Week this past week, electricity doesn't come from a socket. You know what I mean? You've got to generate it. What you really need is for one year to have a dictator come in and say, look, this is actually what needs to be done, and everybody do what I say. We're going to build nuclear, we're going to plant trees, we're going to upgrade the grid, we're going to use natural gas to offset interruptibility of wind and solar, and we're going to max out wind and solar, but we're not going to buy it from China if they use coal-fired power and forced labor to make it. It's not complicated. What's actually happening is, you know, a whole load of nonsense about union jobs and, you know, President Biden saying we're going to take carbon out of the electricity system by 2025. You're like, well, he means 2035, and by the way, that's BS. So it's double BS, you know what I mean? It's just like, what are these people talking about? AOC is clearly very intelligent, very brilliant politician. She doesn't know jack about energy. <laughs> People just don't know the units. They just don't realize how much 100 million barrels a day is in solar power. If you want one gas station made by solar power, you need to cover the whole, the whole of Manhattan needs to be a solar power. And then you'll get one gas station's worth of gasoline when it's sunny. So, I mean, you know, the idea that we can replace oil and gas with solar and wind is just nonsense. By the way, these guys like Apple and Google, who yeah. say that they're all renewable, yeah. they, all their data centers are located in coal-heavy, cheap electricity zones. And what they say is we've, we've now covered all our electricity usage from renewable energy. But we know that renewable energy doesn't run at night, and we know that wind doesn't blow when there's no wind. Yet somehow the data centers run 24-7. It's just, just, just a lie. They're, they're more guilty in many ways than Exxon and Chevron, who basically pretty openly admit that they produce oil and gas and it's not going to be that great for the environment. Paul, what's the, what's the, what's the right thing to do? If, 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 if an administration said, listen, we want to bring you in, we want your inside, we want you to help us think long-term what's the right thing to do, what would be the right thing to do right now? They should all read Vaclav Smell or somebody who's good on energy who explains to you energy density and you know, who can put everything in terms of horsepower. He can do it in any unit you want. The thing that people don't understand is units. They don't understand how much electricity they use, how it's made, and you know, the fact that it's 30% made by coal in the U.S. so that every American uses 20 barrels of oil per head per year. Even the most efficient tree-hugging green is going to be using 10, which is five times the per capita use in China, which, by the way, has multiplied by five times over the past 10 years. That is to say, the average Chinese uses five times more oil than they did, and we're, they're still only 20% of what the average American uh, uses, you know, and, and so all this stuff about, hey, I'm environmentally friendly, it's just like, you're really not, <laughs> you know, and by the way, what happens if I take plastics out of your life? Because people don't even think about that. They realize that, hey, I used a paper straw. It's like, come on, man, get real, you know. Look at where your uh, your pharmaceuticals are delivered from. It's basically partly from an oil company. You know, it's it's really really <laughs> tough, and it's been driven by partly alarmism, partly genuine concern. But above all, it's in a political environment where it's so difficult in democracies to make real massive change, right? Because it's a democracy. So right now we have 50-50 in the Senate, and Joe Manchin is like, I don't want to lose coal. That's the end of the U.S. energy policy for four years, basically. <laughs> he's uh, he's uh, the most respected and hated politician right now but from uh, opposing sides. Some like him, some hate him. 
Yeah, it's uh, interesting. When, when we realized it would be a 50-50 Senate and that Joe Manchin was head of the Energy Committee, it was like, yeah, I don't think much is going to happen here. But um, he's right in one regard, which is, you know, you, you printed 20% of all the dollars ever printed last year, right? And now you're saying we're going to do... And by the way, the recession is the shortest in history and we're long since out of recession because they printed so many dollars. And somehow they're like, okay, let's print another 1.2, 1.2 for infrastructure, and why don't we throw in 3.5 for for uh, human infrastructure? Of which you know you just read through it and you're like, this is just absolutely insane. I've been to visit a friend in Washington, outside Washington. You should see the mansions that are being built on the outskirts of Washington as you go down, uh, you know, into some of the greener areas down there. Literally, it's new mansion being built, new mansion being built, new mansion being built, because, you know, all these Washington, D.C. guys are making insane amounts of money from insane money printing that Joe Manchin is saying is insane. Paul, why are you so diplomatic? I'm being sarcastic, yeah. <laughs> mansion after mansion. I'm looking at an article here with uh, Newsom, because uh, he's trying to pass gas taxes. It says California, California expands road mileage tax pilot program. So rather than increasing gas, he wants to track how many miles you're driving to tax you based on the miles you're putting in rather than taxing your gas. The direction he wants to go in California. This is a Pew Trust article. Yeah. I mean, that also would take into account, obviously, road, you know, having to maintain roads because the other cost of... Uh, there's two additional costs to, to you know, heavy use of cars. One is obviously that you've got to maintain the roads. The other is arguably that you go and fight wars in Iraq, right? So, I mean, I, I actually testified to the Senate and they begged me not to. And I said, well, why not? It's a fact that if you wanted to pay for the war in Iraq through a gasoline tax, you should add, I think at the time, it was $2.50 to every gallon of gas sold in the US. That's how much the war cost. Don't tell me it wasn't about oil. So, you know. They were not happy about that. But, you know, it's like, well, yeah, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Paul, how often are you in uh, uh, South Florida? About once a year for vacation. That's about it. Got it. Okay. Well, if you're ever down here, I'd love to have you on a podcast to go along from two to three hours because uh, I love the way you think. I love the answers. I love the insight. It's very helpful. But I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, man. You're not only... Smart, interesting, and you got a great sense of humor. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks a lot. I'd be happy to come see you. Are you around Miami Beach? That's where I go. I mean, I'm a Fort Lauderdale Boca, so if you're ever out here, would love to host you and would love to have you on the podcast. Yeah, there's some money there. As you know, there's, uh, there's a couple of big fund managers, so I'll be down there sometime in the next year. For sure. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Thanks for being a guest, buddy. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Crazy how a Paul Sankey ended up being one of my favorite interviews of the year. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, give it a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel. And I did a video on uh, uh, that you may or may not like. It was predicting the fact that I think gas prices are going to get to $10 a gallon here very soon. Matter of fact, a county in Central Coast, a city in Central Coast, gas station prices were at $7.58 just this week. If you've not seen this video, click on this video. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.